Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacob's Well Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Today, we're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 18. So if you could uh, turn there with me in your copy of God's Word. If you don't have a Bible, there is a Bible in the seat in front of you. And I think the page number is 987, I think. Usually they... Oh, is that what it is? Okay, yeah, 987. So, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 9 through 18. Hear the word of the Lord. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let's pray. Blessed are you, O God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask that through your Holy Spirit, you enlighten our minds and illuminate our hearts to hear what your word has to say to us, that we may know what hope is and give you the glory. We pray this in your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. One of my favorite songs is His Eye is on the Sparrow. When I'm discouraged, I can listen to that song and I feel like it resonates with my soul. Music has a way of doing this. Let me read some of the lyrics. Why should I feel discouraged? Why should the shadows come? Why should my heart be lonely and long for heaven and home? When Jesus is my portion, my constant friend is he. His eye is on the sparrow and I know he watches me. I'm wondering if anybody here today is feeling discouraged. It could be about how you handled something. It could be about the wars that are occurring around the world. It could be about the current status of the U.S. 
could be your job, your finances. It could be your health. It could be your home life. It could be school. It could be the Packers losing to the 49ers. Discouragement is the feeling of lost hope. And one of the main reasons for discouragement is the uncertainty of the future. So how can we be, dis- how can we be encouraged if the future is uncertain? Well, the good news is for Christians, our future is certain. And one of those things that is certain is that Jesus is coming back. This is our hope and our encouragement. The sad truth is, oftentimes we take the coming of Jesus and turn it into a discouraging topic among Christians. It can be a hotly debated issue and leave a lot of people not wanting to talk about it. Now, just to be clear, there are four non-negotiables when it comes to talking about the return of Jesus. One, he's going to literally come back. Um, There's going to be a bodily resurrection. There will be a final judgment, and there will be a new heavens and earth. But the details on what that's going to look like and and how that's going to play out, those are details that are debatable. And they're not a part of the non-negotiables, but what happens is a lot of times we take some of those details and then we turn them into a part of the non-negotiables, which also leads into a lot of heated debates among Christians. So, so heated, a lot of times Christians don't even want to talk about it. The truth is, discussing the second coming of Jesus should be a topic that brings encouragement among believers. This is our certain hope that we're all looking forward to. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul is actually going to instruct this young church what it means to live in the hope of Christ returning. And here's what we're going to discover. Because of the hope we have in Christ returning, we must be an encouragement to others. And to discover this, we're going to look at two points. First, uh, we must, uh, because of the hope of Christ returning, we must be an encouragement through our conduct And because of the hope of Christ returning, we must be an encouragement through our comfort. Again, we must be an encouragement through our conduct and comfort. If you've been following along with us in our series on 1 Thessalonians, you would know that uh, Paul begins this letter with encouragement that Timothy's come back, that there's this church that Paul only got to spend about three weeks with before he was run out of town by what Pastor Dan calls the Jewish Mafia, is actually thriving. It's actually doing well. And then chapter 2, he has to defend his character because he did have to leave in the middle of the night for his life. And then chapter 3, he explains Timothy's role and how he was able to mediate between this church and him. And then we enter chapter 4. Chapter 4 is actually going to be where Paul is going to give instructions to the Thessalonian church. Um, And despite the fact that Paul was only there three weeks, they they knew one thing. The one thing they knew was that Jesus was coming back. Uh, Paul mentions it in every single chapter in this letter. In fact, if you're, you're, you might be aware of this. Every chapter concludes with Paul talking about the return of Jesus. So chapter 1, verse 10, chapter 2, verse 19, chapter 3, verse 13. So this is something that Paul has been repeatedly telling this church, that Jesus is coming back, and they knew this. And based on that truth... They had two questions. What do we do until Jesus comes back? And what about our loved ones? And that takes us to where we are today in verse 9 through 18. So 
Let's look at our first point. Because of the hope we have in Christ returning, we must be an encouragement through our conduct. Let's look at verses 9 through 12 again. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So Paul informs them of what they're doing well. They are loving fellow believers in the church. And and then Paul tells them the doctrine on how they're able to do this. He tells them that they are being taught by God because they have the Holy Spirit, which they share with other believers, and they naturally are starting to conduct themselves with love towards the brothers. Paul informs them also on what they could do to make this a little bit better. He tells them to mind their own affairs, live quiet lives, and by working. You see... Believers are to be an encouragement to others by how we conduct ourselves, both in word and deed. And because of the hope they had in Christ returning, they actually started to let their work slip, or they actually stopped working. And the idea was, well, if Jesus is coming back at any moment, why are we working? Or why why are we rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, right? We're we're, we're not going to be here long. And Paul tells them the reason they do this is because... They serve as an encouragement to fellow believers and because they are on witness for the outside world to see. So there are many, sadly, many date-setting prophecy movements about the return of Jesus. Jesus himself warned us about not listening to these things. Uh, There was one in 2011 where a Christian radio host predicted the return of Jesus, and there was a a wave of Christians that began following this. And there were many billboards posted throughout the nation, and there's a few of them here. I think the next one's my favorite one. There it is. The Bible guarantees it. May 21st, 2011. So there was, these were posted all over the nation, and including here in Wisconsin. And despite the fact that Scripture is explicitly clear that nobody, nobody knows the day or the hour that Jesus is going to return, there was still a following. And unfortunately, there was a fallout. You see how they conducted themselves actually encouraged people to give away their possessions, quit their jobs, idly wait for Jesus to come back. Their conduct also served as a discouragement to other believers because other believers knew that their movement was unbiblical. And probably the worst was this was displayed for non-believers to see. And of course, when it didn't happen... Staunch atheists launched their criticisms towards Christianity. You see, their hope was that Jesus was going to return. And that's the correct hope. That is where our hope is to be. The problem was how they conducted themselves was actually a discouragement to other people, and it was publicly displayed for non-believers to see. See, the way we live our lives serves as our Christian testimony to the outside world. If the Christian community themselves is poorly conducting themselves, uh, we cannot encourage fellow believers, and we, and, we can't, and we definitely can't bring non-believers to Jesus. So what does this look like practically? Well, is Jesus included in your conduct when you're taking a test or an exam or writing a paper? Is Jesus included in your conduct when you're hanging out with your friends 
or a boyfriend or a girlfriend? Is Jesus including your conduct when you're doing your taxes? It is that time of the year. Or working at your job or when you're talking about people of a dif different political party you disagree with. See, the way we conduct ourselves matters because it serves as an encouragement to fellow believers, but at the same time, it's on display for non-believers to see. Now, I could give you a list of do's and don'ts on how you should do this, you know, be honest, be responsible, don't use bad words, um, but that, that's actually not going to give you much encouragement. The good news is we can do this because we're being taught by God. Verse 9, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. So, Paul is saying, listen to that inner voice that is telling you how to conduct yourself a little bit differently. The things you used to do and say now begin to bother you because you now have the Holy Spirit in you that is slowly creating you into the image of Jesus. And this is going to serve as an encouragement to others, but also be an attraction to non-believers, to the hope we have in Jesus. So the two questions that the Thessalonians have is, what do we do in, until Jesus comes back? Paul says, be an encouragement through your conduct. The second question they had was, what about our loved ones? Are they going to miss the return of Jesus? And that takes us to our second point. Because of the hope we have in Christ returning, we must be an encouragement through our conduct. And that takes us to verses 13 through 18. Before we start, just want to let you know, there's a lot here. We're just going to have to walk through it verse by verse. But just so you know where we are going, verse 13 is the main point. Everything else after that is to support that main point. So let's look at verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So their question was, what about our loved ones? Paul says, you grieve for them. Yes. Those who have died, you grieve. But you grieve differently because it's grounded in hope. Now, hope in the Bible is different than how we use the word hope. Usually we say we hope it doesn't rain. Or, and it, it's indicating something that could or couldn't happen. But when the Bible talks about hope, it's actually talking about something that is certain. Something in the future that's guaranteed to happen. It just hasn't happened yet. This would be similar to the expression of set in stone. It's unchangeable. It's going to occur. It just hasn't occurred yet. So Paul says grieve but grieve with hope. Verse 14, he gives us the logic behind it. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So the logic is, if Christ died and was raised, then those in Christ who have died will also be raised. Paul says, through Christ, God will bring with him, that's Jesus, those who have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep is a euphemism for for died. So yes, Paul says grieve, but with hope. The logic is if Christ, if Christ died and was resurrected, so will we. And then he grounds it in verse 15, which is absolute truth. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So Paul states that uh, those who have died will actually be the first ones to see Jesus, then the rest of us, 
And for this we declare to you a word from the Lord. Meaning that Jesus himself actually said this. We're not sure to who or when, but Paul is saying you can believe this because Jesus himself explicitly said this. So, Paul says grieve, but with hope. The logic behind it is if, we, if, if Christ died and was raised, so will we. And he bases this on the truth that Jesus said it himself. And then he goes into the details. Again, some of the details are not a part of the non-negotiable. Just so you know, we're going to go into them though. Okay, buckle up. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the, air, uh, to meet the Lord in the air. So Paul states there's going to be a threefold announcement of Jesus when he comes. There's going to be a cry of command, there's going to be the voice of an archangel, and there's going to be the trumpet of God. If we're going to take this text literally, uh, this is going to be loud. This is going to be a very loud event. In fact, it's going to be waking the dead, literally, because they're going to be the first ones that rise to see Jesus. And then we who are alive will be caught up in the air. That's the Latin word raptuo, which is where we get our word rapture. Then the rest of us will be caught up in the air to the clouds, and we'll meet the Lord in the air. So what Paul is actually describing here is the great day of the Lord. There are many Old Testament passages that talk about the day of the Lord. Um, Zephaniah 1.14 says, The great day of the Lord is near, near and hasting fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress, a day of anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cries. So we see that that Old Testament passage is very similar to our passage, that there's clouds, trumpet blasts, battle cries, but we don't need to dig through the Old Testament to see if this is the same day of the Lord. Paul himself calls it the day of the Lord. If you just scan up to chapter 5 and look at the first two verses, Paul says, Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a, like a thief in the night. So Paul himself is saying what, we're, what he's talking about is the day of the Lord. So Jesus will descend. Those who have died will be the first to rise. Then the rest of us who are alive will be caught up together to meet them in the air. But then what happens? Where do we go? Where do we go? Doesn't say. Paul doesn't explicitly say what happens. But there's a few words in the Greek that I think will indicate what actually is going to occur. This is what linguists would call shared non-specified information, meaning that the words used in the Greek would indicate to that culture what was going to happen. They would know what the meaning was. So for instance, in verse 5, uh, I'm sorry, verse 15, the coming of the Lord. Uh, the coming of the Lord, that word coming is parousia, which is, talks about the coming of a king. And then verse 17, it says, we will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet. That word to meet is the Greek word apentesis. It's a technical term for going out to meet a king, sort of a reception party, and then escorting them back into the city. This would have been a cultural norm. During that time, they would have, if a king visited your city, you would go out to meet them, and then you would follow them back in. 
So this word, apenthesis, would linguistically, historically, and culturally suggest that we would go to meet the Lord as our king and then follow him back down as a part of his royal procession. But how does the Bible actually use this word? Well, the word apenthesis only shows up in three other locations. It shows up in Matthew 25, Acts 28, and John 12. In Matthew 25, it talks about the Jesus is telling a parable about his second return. And he says there was 10 virgins, five wise virgins, five not-so-wise virgins, and they were waiting for the bridegroom, and they fall asleep. They was delayed. And then at midnight, there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet. There's that word, apenthesis. And those who were wise did go out to meet the bridegroom and then followed him back into the marriage supper. The Acts passage is uh, Paul is on his way to Rome and fellow believers go out to meet him a great distance. They actually travel very far to go to him and they kind of treat him as he's a big deal because he's an apostle and then they follow him back to Rome. But I think John 12 is the most telling of this, of this word, how it's used. It talks about the triumphal entry. It says, the next day, the large crowd had heard that, uh, let me try that again. The next day, the large crowd that come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. There's that word, to meet. Crying out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So we see that in the triumphal passage, uh, the triumphal entry, they cry out to him, they go out to meet Jesus, and then they follow him back into Jerusalem, and they treat him as their king. So do I believe that the triumphal entry in John is a shadow of the real triumphal entry when Jesus comes back? Absolutely. Again, these are going to be some of the debatable things, not a part of the non-negotiables on how this is all going to look out. I'm just kind of telling you what the original language would suggest, some of their cultural norms, and that how the Bible is consistent in using that word like that. But what is the point of all this? Why is Paul telling them all this? You remember the point is, chapter, is verse 13, that you do not grieve as others do who have no hope. So my mother died pretty suddenly, and um, me and my brother were caught off guard. I was living in Wisconsin. He was living in Indiana, and we, were, we had to get back to Georgia, so it wasn't like we were next door. And um, we were the last of her family. She didn't have any spouse, siblings, parents. She had nothing. It was just me and my brother. So we had to rush back and had to handle all of the details uh, of her funeral and I was very distracted. I had to figure out all the details of what am I going to do with her house? What am I going to do with her car? What am I going to do with her dogs? Where are we going to bury her? What's she going to wear? And during the funeral, my brother broke down. You see, we were burying our mother on his birthday, and I had completely missed the point. I had got so caught up in important details. They're important details. I got so caught up into the details that I had, I had actually missed the main point. The main point was to be comforting my brother who was grieving. Christians, many of us, myself included, 
focus on a lot of the important details of this passage, but we miss the main point. The main point is because of the hope we have in Christ returning, we must be an encouragement through our comfort to others, those who are grieving, those who are struggling, to give them this certain hope that we have. You see, we live in a culture that fights against death and pretends that it's not real. We as a church have an amazing and powerful responsibility to comfort those who are grieving about the hope we have in Christ. We need to be honest about death. We got to come around those who are grieving. The church has a role in this. And this is going to be different from each person. Sometimes it means just sitting with them, making them a meal, sending them a card, offering to help in whatever way you can. So Paul's main point of this section is to comfort those, agree- those who are grieving because those who have died are going to be the first to see Jesus. How do we know this is the main point? Well, if we just pick up where we left off in verse 17, about halfway through, let's pick it up halfway through. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. We will be reunited with our loved ones. We will be together with Jesus, and we will be with them for eternity, forever and ever. This is what we're supposed to tell and encourage people with. I've talked about this hope, that it's certain, but I really haven't told you what this hope is. Paul actually already said what this hope is. If you look at verse 14, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, Even so, through Jesus. See, our hope is the resurrection. And this is crucial to the gospel. Why is the resurrection crucial to the gospel? Because it's the evidence that Jesus defeated death and reversed the curse of sin and death. Or as to say it as Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus had not resurrected, you would still be in your sins and death would be your final outcome. And he goes on to say, we would be the most pitied to be, we would be the most pitied people, and our preaching is in vain. So how do we escape death? Well, the verse tells us, verse 14 still tells us, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose. It's going to be through Jesus because we believe. This is made possible because we've been given the Holy Spirit. That's why verse 9 makes sense. We've been given the Holy Spirit, and now God is teaching us through it. And because we have this same Holy Spirit as Jesus, we are in union with Christ. So if Jesus died and rose, that means that we will die and rise as well. The resurrection is a guarantee that we're no longer under death and that our future resurrection is going to happen. This is why Paul could speak of the resurrection in past tense, in uh, sorry, for, uh, in, in uh, if, Ephesians, there's the word. In Ephesians chapter 2, when you were dead in our trespasses, when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised, past tense, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Or the way Jesus spoke of this when he was comforting Martha about the loss of her brother. She was grieving. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said, yes, Lord, I believe. 
Let me ask you this question. Do you believe this, that Jesus died and was resurrected? If you do, your resurrection is so guaranteed, it just hasn't happened. It's set in stone. Now, those who do not have this hope as a side, and you want this hope, talk to an elder, seek out one of the pastors here at this church, listen to that tugging at your heart because you're being taught by God. So the second coming of Jesus should be a topic that brings encouragement among believers. This is our certain hope that we're all looking forward to. We can do this in two ways. First, by our conduct, by building up fellow believers in our word and deed. And it also serves as a testimony to the dying world. And the second way we can encourage others is through our comfort. We as a church have a role in comforting those who are grieving. And the way we do this is with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That since Jesus conquered death by raising from the dead, those in Christ will be reunited with Christ forever and ever. This is our hope, the second coming, and it's something we're supposed to talk about and encourage others. I began by asking a question, how do you find encouragement if the future is uncertain? And then I explained, for Christians, this isn't. For us, it is certain. Let me give you a testimony that encourages people about a hope that is certain. Many of us know who Pastor Jonathan Whitley was. He was the pastor here before Pastor Gallagher. And uh, his wife and him experienced the loss of their son at a very young age. Clay was called to be home with the Lord at the age of three. And among their heartbreaking, tear-filled agony, they could still praise Jesus. The day that he died, they now call his homecoming. And they celebrate it by watching videos of Clay. Some of us have had the blessing of sharing in that homecoming celebration, and many of us have walked away and said it was one of the best days of our life. I did ask him beforehand if he was comfortable if I would share this, and he said yes, but he made one small request. He said, be sure you say that my son died when he was three, and thanks be to God, we have the hope of the resurrection for those who trust in Jesus. Jesus died and rose, and we must die and rise. We truly do grieve with hope. Yes, please share in whatever way would glorify God and encourage others. You cannot do that unless your hope is certain. This is what it looks like to grieve with hope. This encourages me, and this gives me hope in the gospel about the resurrection. A Christian funeral is a time for tears and a time for worship. This passage is meant to be read at a funeral. This is a passage I want read at my funeral. To encourage those who are grieving about the hope we have in Christ, that we will be reunited when Jesus comes back, and he will remove death, and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Let's go encourage others, because we do not grieve as those who have no hope. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you. We praise Jesus for conquering the grave and because of your Holy Spirit. You will not abandon us to the grave. We rejoice in this truth and take refuge in your completed work. Thank you for this Holy Spirit which counsels us and guides us here and now until the day when Christ will return and we will all be reunited together forever and ever. Amen.